Our New Testament reading is from Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on his humble, on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown his strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained silent for about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. As we are leading up to Christmas, we are in the midst of a series called The Songs of Advent. And during this series, it's just a short one, we're looking at a few of the songs in the Bible and and how they highlight and explain the meaning behind the birth of Jesus. And this week, we're studying the song, what Manny just read for us. We're studying the song that Mary sings shortly after she finds out that she is pregnant and is going to give birth to the Messiah. And those words that, we, that Manny read for us, they're pretty well-known words. That, that passage is called the Magnificat. And in a lot of church traditions, it's read every single week. But with passages like that, the ones that are most familiar, if we're not careful, uh, we can miss the meaning behind them. And maybe even more importantly, we can miss the feeling behind them, right? Because this is a song, after all. Mary, when she finds out that she's, she's pregnant, this is a moment when she responds in, in song. She responds in poetry. It's, it's not just news to her, right? It is, it's not just theology. This is something that, that made her feel. She knew in this moment that the world was never going to be the same again. She felt that. And Luke, he records this song so that we would feel it too, just like Mary did. He wants us to see the beauty. He wants us to be wrapped up in the majesty and the mystery of this, this crazy event. And so today, that's what I'm hoping that we can do. It may be a tall order, but I would love for us to, to discover exactly what Mary is singing about here. And I would love for, for as we study it, for, for this to make us sing as well. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at three things. First, we are going to look at the words of the song. What are the words? What, what is she singing about? And then I want us to think about the audience this song was sung for. And then finally, I want us to think about where we fit within the song. So you got that? Let's start by talking about the words of the song. Um, we're looking at the, the Gospel of Luke today. And if you're familiar, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the first four books of the New Testament. 
They tell the story of Jesus, what he taught, what he did. And the, the opening of the Gospel of Luke um, tells us the story of Jesus' birth and a lot of the events that surround that. And if you've grown up in the church, you are probably very familiar with some of these stories. This is where you find the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. It's where we learn about the shepherds and the angels. Um, when I was in high school, I went to a, high, a church where they let the youth group run a little Christmas play every year. <laughs> and no matter how hard I try, every time I read these passages, I'm reminded of that little play that we used to do. I'm reminded of teenagers in bathrobes, you know, with the little cheesy canes. And maybe you guys have a similar picture in your head from, from TV or from a movie or from something in the past. But I would love it if right now you could take whatever image it is that you have and just throw it away. I, I'd love if we could kind of cleanse our mind of those things this morning. And instead, I'd love to try and paint for you another picture. A picture of what life was like for Mary. Um, it's a picture of an oppressed people. A people who were nearly broken. The last few weeks, we were studying Joshua, right? You guys remember that? Nod your head. Say yes. Show me your life. <laughs> you remember that? We studied Joshua. And in Joshua, we read the story of how um, the, the, the nation of Israel went into the promised land, and they, they triumphed, they, they conquered. Well, as history goes on, you read in Scripture that they continue to triumph. They continue to conquer. The people of Israel become a great nation. And they begin to have these great kings. And at the height of their powers, when David is sitting on the throne, you can read in 2 Samuel that there is a moment when God makes a fantastic promise to them. He says in 2 Samuel 16 to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Say forever. Forever. But after David's reign, instead of this onward and upward trajectory, the people of God started to serve idols. And eventually, the entire nation slipped into idolatry and it was destroyed. In 587 BC, the nation of Babylon came, they conquered the people of Israel, they ransacked Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and they carried all the people off into exile. And a little less than a century later, some of those people, they were allowed to come back. But Jerusalem, it never got back that glory. It never got back to that moment the way things were under King David. And by the time the Gospel of Luke begins, nearly 400 years later, the Jewish people had faced hundreds, hundreds of years of humiliation. Off and on, they were conquered by different nations. They were invaded by different people. They had a few short years of independence. But now, at this point, when Mary is around, they are under the influence, under the authority of the Roman government. They have this guy Herod the Great and his family. They are running things in the city, and they've, they've kind of rebuilt 
some of the city, but everyone knows he has no real power, that he's really just a puppet, that he is under the thumb of this foreign regime. Okay, I know we got a lot of people who haven't lived in Boston a long time, but do you guys remember that the Red Sox were on an 86-year losing streak? Anybody remember those days? It seems like a long time ago now. But if you were here during that time, like year 85, for instance, when, when Aaron Boone uh, destroyed the hopes of, uh, of the Red Sox yet again, you know those moments when the team would lose, weren't just, it wasn't just loss, right? It was, it was demoralizing for the whole city. And that's just a baseball team. When we get to Mary, we're not talking about a baseball team. We're talking about an entire nation that had been on a 400-year losing streak. An entire nation who was supposedly the chosen people of God. And so, we come to this point, and, and it seems like, what happened? God promised that, that David was going to be on the throne forever. But everything was looking the other way. Everything was pointing in the other direction. And that is the world into which the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary. And he says this in Luke chapter 1. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb, you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Anybody who heard that news was going to be shocked. Not just shocked, nobody expected it. It had been so long. But you know who really didn't expect to hear it? Mary. Mary didn't expect to hear it because she was nobody. Mary wasn't rich. Mary wasn't famous. Mary wasn't a, a political player. She was a young, poor woman from an oppressed and impoverished nation. She had no power in her society. No power in the world that she lived in. She was the most unlikely person to be the mother of God. And so Luke, he tells us that after she gets this crazy message, she immediately goes to visit her relative Elizabeth. And when she gets in the door... She doesn't explain a thing. As soon as she walks in, Elizabeth makes this blessing, this declaration. She says to, to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And, and why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And that's when it happens. That's when Mary breaks out into song. And look, guys, I just want you to, we don't sing a lot here, but I want to tell you, this isn't a musical. <laughs> this isn't a song that, that is designed to advance the plot of the story. She's not, she is, she is singing 
because she is overwhelmed with emotion. She is singing because it is, it's pure worship. It's, you know, as I'm thinking about it, I feel like this is the moment for her when things finally sunk in. Now, in our Bibles, it's just a couple of verses. It doesn't tell you much. But, but for Mary to go from her house to see Elizabeth, it was like 70 miles. She went on this 70-mile journey all by herself. And I can only imagine what was in her mind as she's traveling that distance alone. She said, an angel came to me. <laughs> an angel told me that, that I'm, I'm pregnant. I believe him, but do I believe him? Am I losing my mind? Am I crazy? Did this really happen? But, but what if it did happen? What would it mean for me if this comes true? What is it going to mean for my people if this is true? And now, as she walks into Elizabeth's presence, all this stuff that's been circling through her mind just comes pouring out. Now, knowing that background, knowing that's where she lived, where she had come from, what she might be thinking, listen again to the words of the song. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who has done, he who is mighty, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, and he has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you hear those words? Can you understand those words? These are, these are, this is not just a happy song. She isn't just singing, I'm so happy that I'm pregnant. This is a song about the gospel itself. It is a song about the greatness of our God whose kingdom does not make any sense to this world. Where the first become last, and the last become first. It's about a God who in this one miraculous moment is transforming the universe as we know it. And not only that, she recognizes this is not just going to change her life, but it's going to change her people's lives. It's a song about a God who never forgets His promises. A God who always remembers His mercy. It's a song about how after hundreds of years of kings coming and going, each one trying to make a name for himself, the true king has finally come, and the values of His kingdom are going to turn this world upside down. Amen. That's the words of the song. So now let's talk for a minute about the audience that heard it. Um, we can only imagine, right? We can only try and imagine what Mary felt when she sang this. But it does really help for us to think about the culture, for us to think about her overlooked and her forgotten status in that culture. Mary was not a powerful person in her society. 
Despite the way that we see her, right? Despite the way she gets painted in old European paintings, she was not this glowing saint wearing a blue robe. In fact, as this, this poor young woman, as she walked 70 miles to go visit Elizabeth or, or rode on a camel or however she got there, she would have probably looked a lot more like those people in the caravan that's coming from Guatemala. She'd look a lot more like them than a nun in a convent. The systems of her culture were not made for her to succeed. In fact, they were designed for her oppression. And when we know that, when we understand that's where she's coming from, it really helps us to understand her joy. It would be great to learn that God is coming to reverse all this to finally make things right. But, not everyone should be so excited. Did you know the book of Luke is, is addressed to someone? Did you know that? That it is written specifically with one person in mind? You can read it in chapter 3, or verse 3 of the first chapter. Luke says, when he's explaining why he wrote, he said, it seemed good to me having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He says it's written to this guy, most excellent Theophilus. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, um, but we do know by looking at the way he's addressed that he was a person of renown. He was a person of prestige. He might have even been a political figure. And as I was reading this song all week and studying it, thinking about what Mary had to say, I couldn't help but think about Theophilus, this guy who had just received this scroll with the Gospel of Luke on it. You know, he's unrolling it, pinning it down, and trying to read along, and, and the plot of the book is just starting to pick up, right? God has sent his angel who has announced that his son is coming and it's coming through this woman, Mary, and he's going to redeem the world and he's going to bring down the mighty from their thrones hmm. and send the rich away empty. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> what? The message is clear, right? The Messiah, his arrival, it's not just about lifting up the poor, but it is about a reckoning. He is here to bring rescue for the oppressed, but not only rescue, he's here to bring justice to the oppressor. Now, that shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. The, the truth is, throughout the Old Testament, God has made these promises. There's plenty of prophecies that say exactly this, that when the Messiah comes, He's going to bring not only a lifting up, but also He's going to bring justice. Ezekiel 34, for instance, just one of those passages, He talks about a day in which I Myself will be the shepherd of My sheep, and I Myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. But the fat 
and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with justice. So Mary, she should rejoice. But Theophilus, maybe not so much. And what about us? As we think about this song, where do we stand on that spectrum? The spectrum of the humble and the proud. The rich and the poor. The mighty and the weak. Because I'm going to be honest, I I think there are a lot of us in this room that truth be told, could be listed with the rich and the mighty. And maybe, maybe you hear me say that, you're like, speak for yourself, Pastor. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying, but, but I'm not a king. I'm far from it. I can barely afford my rent. But I don't know. There is a lot of power and a lot of oppression in our country that we have just learned to ignore. That we have trouble seeing. I've been reading a lot this week about Um, race in our country, especially race in the church. And there's two books, if you want to write them down, I'd love to recommend them to you. One book I read was called White Awake. The other book I read was called Insider Outsider. The first one was written by uh, a white pastor trying to plant a multi-ethnic church in Chicago. And the other was written by an African-American pastor who's trying to plant a multi-ethnic church in Memphis, Tennessee, and in a couple of other cities around the world. Um, But as I read through that stuff, the whole issue was weighing really heavily on me as I studied what Mary had to say. As I was thinking about just those brutal realities that we live in, that if you are a white person in our country, no matter how lowly you might feel, to some extent, you are a person of power and privilege. We live in a country that gives privilege to people and to entire cultures based on their proximity to whiteness. So white skin and and white culture, in our world, those are perceived as normal. And that means that in this nation, the better you can fit into normal, the more likely you are to succeed. So even if you don't have money, if you're white, you're going to have an easier time getting a loan or getting a job or networking. And that doesn't even mention the legacy of of the injustice of slavery. I work in the office with the Institute for Policy Studies, and they released this report that I read, and it was talking about the the racial divide of of wealth, like the total wealth that people have. And in that report, it said that as of 2013, the the average, the median wealth of a black family in our nation was $1,700. The median wealth of a white family in our nation is $113,000. And when I consider a God who hates injustice, who hates oppression, who removes the mighty from their throne and lifts up the weak, I think he would have a lot to say about that. Or put race aside. We're all oppressors. What about the clothes on your back? What about the phones in your pockets? Who made those?
I read this week that 168 million children work to produce our goods. That children between 5 and 14 are forced to do labor, and we, we kind of know it, but we don't really think about it. In Roxbury, we, we might look around to Newton or to Brookline or to, to Beacon Hill, and we say, well, we're not really mighty. <laughs> but what about when we look to the rest of the world? We are a people whose comfort comes at the expense of the nations. And we hardly give it any thought. And my point in bringing all that up is that Mary's song, it brings out emotion. But those emotions are, are different depending on where you stand. The message of the coming Messiah is good news for the poor. But it's terrible news for the powerful. It says that God will rescue the lowly and the weak. But those who profit and gain from injustice will be fed with justice. Now, I don't know about you, but that leaves me with some questions. What about me? <laughs> Who am I in this song? Where do I fit? Am I supposed to rejoice with Mary, or, or should I cower with Theophilus? Well, I think for us to answer that question, we need to, to be clear about one fact. In God's eyes, everyone is poor. In God's eyes, Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, they are completely impoverished. Because no matter how much wealth we have, no matter how much power we are able to accrue and hoard for ourselves in this world, we are all going to stand before our God empty-handed. And the reason that wealth, the reason that, that power are so dangerous for us they're so dangerous for our souls and so contrary to the values of God is because they blind us to the neediness of our souls. Wealth keeps us from seeing our need. Power keeps us from seeing our need. Jesus, when he's speaking to the church in Revelation, he points that exact thing out. He says to this one church, he says, you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The message of Mary's song is right there. It's the essence of the gospel itself. You can't be saved if you don't think you need a Savior. If you think your life is fine on its own, if you think that you have everything figured out, then of course you're not going to cry out for deliverance. If you think that you are going to be able to stand before God and give a list of all your accomplishments, all your good deeds, all your good intentions, if you think that you have lived a life that would be enough to gain the approval of a holy God, then your pride will be your downfall. 
It's what Mary's saying. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. But on the other hand, Jesus. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says exactly what his mom sang. He says, the one who gets the kingdom are the ones who see their need. The one who gets the kingdom are the ones who know that they are poor in spirit. The ones who get lifted up are the ones who see how lowly they really are. How helpless we are to save ourselves. Friends, the truth is, in this room, some of us are more powerful than others. Some of us are more mighty than others. Some of us are more rich than others. But before God, none of us are anything more than poor sinners. And this, this is the message. This is the gospel. It tells us that the one who Scripture says owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, he has all the wealth. The one who sets up and removes kings. The one who has all the authority. The one who created the world just by speaking. The one who has all the power. The most mighty, the most glorious, the king of the universe took on flesh and died for us. 1 Corinthians, it says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. That's what makes Mary sing. Because it makes no sense. It makes no sense that God would love us like that. And everyone who knows that, every one of you who has seen that, who has experienced that salvation, we should all sing right along with her. He who has mighty, he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Hallelujah. So whether we come to Jesus from the top, or whether we come to Him from the bottom of this world, we all come in poor because of our sin. And we are all made rich, not by our efforts, but by His grace and His mercy in dying for us on the cross. So, first I want to invite you. Don't ignore that. Come to Him today. Don't delay. Respond to Him. If you don't know Him, you are lowly. Let Him lift you up. Or be cast down if you don't. And I want to close with this. The question I asked in this last part was, where do we fit into this song? And if you're a Christian, if you know that, that you fit as a follower of Jesus, if you serve a king who, came, who became poor so that you could become rich, well, that means that here in the church, we have a unique opportunity. 
during Advent, right? This is Advent. And we're supposedly, right now, we are looking forward to this kingdom. We're looking ahead to this moment when finally the first are going to be the last, and the last are going to be the first. But as God's people, we're not just supposed to wait. As the church, we're not just supposed to wait till Jesus comes back for this kind of stuff to start being seen as a reality. This should be our reality today. A community of people here where the powerful and the weak come together to exalt the same Savior. Where the poor and the rich call each other sister and brother. A community of people who who prioritize not the world's values of power and privilege, but God's values of justice and mercy. We should be a people who exalt the humble and fill the hungry with good things. And for those of us, we all have some kind of power and we should be excited to share it. No matter how much or how little that power may be. If you have two tunics, give away one. And that's my prayer for us right now, this year, as we're headed into Christmas that God would more and more make us a church that looks like His kingdom. And that when we see it, it might make us sing. Let's pray.